it's really amazing that human beings coming together like we've done, that we have these nine days to study the mind, study the heart, and the great scheme of things. This is a pretty rare event. You might be a little tired after the first day, it's not uncommon. You might have some doubts or some confusion about why the heck you signed up for a nine day silent meditation retreat. But it's truly amazing to have this much time to do what in a way we should have been interested in doing all along throughout our lives. I mean, clearly the mind, the heart, whatever we call this inner space of our lives is a relevant happening. But the truth is we've basically been too busy or it's appeared to us that we're too busy to take a close look, careful look. And that to me is truly amazing and and a little tragic that Generally speaking, human beings don't have the supportive conditions to study our heart, to study the mind, to study the way it is. In Buddhism, we talk about dharma or dhamma, the way it is, waking up to the way it is. And we we get a sense at, at the cost of not doing that, like, not so easy or not as easy to see it in our own lives, but we see it in other people's lives, people doing the same thing, getting the same results. You know, when we're feeling stressed, how many of us go to the same thing, whether it's food or reading the news or whatever it is that ultimately isn't very helpful, but there we are, we see ourselves And it always occurs to us on some level to, I should really look at this, you know, what's really going on here? But we rarely get a chance until we sign up for a nine day retreat at IMS or something similar. And then we wonder whether we actually want the chance (laughs) to take a closer look, to feel into, to open up to, to see more clearly the way it is. And the Dhammapada, this collection of verses from the Buddhist tradition, there's a passage, truly wisdom springs from meditation. Without meditation, wisdom wanes. Having known these two paths of progress and decline, let one conduct oneself so that wisdom may increase. So I think here the word uh, meditation is probably the word for um, developing the heart, stabilizing, developing, clarifying, so that the heart, the mind, becomes a useful instrument to see things as they are, to see in particular the nature of the mind for what it is. 
I was thinking about this today, just the understanding this practice of mindfulness that we do here. And it occurred to me if we were walking in the woods and just happened upon a doe giving birth to a fawn, a baby deer, you know, just imagine how quickly our mind would gather, unify. You know, we wouldn't, would anybody be distracted? You know, if we had a perfect perch, we just happened to be in the right place at the right time and the deer couldn't smell us or hear us. And we were just observing this scene. Or you could just imagine some other, you know, interesting, unusual, natural scene. And how easily the mind would gather, how authentic and pure the interest would be. There wouldn't be miscellaneous thoughts about politics or about knee pain or whatever else might fill the mind a lot of the time. And probably initially, or, you know, at least after a few moments, we'd really settle in. And the body would get calm, the mind would feel maybe even clear as a bell. In preparation for this talk, I read a poem that I like. Um, a lot of you know Mary Oliver, and the, the, she has a poem where she was in Florida and uh, she didn't realize it, but um, she startled an alligator that bolted past her and she just dove to the side. And, uh, and she talks in the poem about, not about how stupid she was to be you know, unaware of the alligator, but how once she got up from having jumped to the side to get out of the way of the alligator who was bolting to the water, it's like everything opened up. She just saw everything. I think the line in the poem is something as if for the first time or as if reborn. And this also gives us a sense of what we're doing here. I mean, part of the Buddha, when he talked about the, the basic problem, ignorance or delusion, it's really thinking we already know what's going on so that we don't have to be interested. We don't have to be alert. We can continue in the same circles, the same, you know, thinking the same thoughts, having the same perceptions. And the interesting thing is what, what will help us break that cycle This is from Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese uh, teacher, Buddhist monk. I would like yogis, retreatants, to get to the point where they realize that without focusing or paying attention, the nature of knowing is happening. They are too busy thinking they are practicing. They need to step back in order to see what's happening. They need to switch from doing to recognizing. So there's this interesting, it's always challenging these chicken and egg situations. 
you know, how do we get, if we see our practice, see our time here at IMS as a lot of doing, sitting still, bringing my attention to the breath or to the body, looking at the defilements, looking at greed in the mind or hate in the mind. Because all of that, those are good instructions. Maybe not with that tone of voice that I used, but you know, we do want to see all that stuff, know that it's like this, this is being known. But if all that work, like if it's seen as a doing, something I have to do, I mean, how many times, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, just to spend an evening, everybody sharing all the times in their lives where they picked up some idea of a doing project. I'm going to do that. I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to start to exercise or I'm going to learn Buddhist meditation or I, and only to be frustrated or feel betrayed or even if we accomplish something, but it didn't turn out, the doing project didn't turn out to deliver what we thought it might deliver. And then we could spend another evening talking about all the times we told ourselves we were done with doing, you know, no more, too many disappointments. I'm not going to date anymore. I'm not going to have hobbies. I'm putting it all down. You know, it's some version, modern day version of being a hermit or a minimalist or whatever the going thing is for this other half. So it's interesting about mindfulness practice and just generally this path of waking up that the Buddha pointed at. It has elements of non-doing and it has elements of doing. And we sort of, you know, our more superficial mind, you know, if we're, if we're in a place in our life where we're tired of doing, then we're only interested in instructions that talk about the practice being about being receptive and just allowing, letting everything be. And if we've been in a phase where we've really put down a lot and sat on the couch a lot and decided we didn't want to do stuff for a while, then we might be in a different place where we really like the instructions and the teachings that are about, you know, getting somewhere, waking up, going beyond the, you know, the magnetic pull of our unhealthy, unhelpful mental habits, vanquishing them once and for all. There's a lot of this martial or warrior um, language in the tradition, maybe because the Buddha himself, before becoming a wandering ascetic, was uh, you know, in that sort of warrior, princely class or caste. And just, so a lot of the language is this sort of overcoming but it's, you know, actually the path is really pragmatic. And in moments, you'll see, in moments of the retreat, you'll be, intuitively, you'll feel asked to really show up in a powerful way and to apply yourself 
the mind applying itself to the task at hand. And other times the task at hand will be to let go or to let be or to relax or to trust. And in a way the primary obstacle, because I think it it just is opposite of mindfulness, is wanting to know the answer, like the answer of how to practice. Because it, it really comes from this place of wanting to be on autopilot, which is like the one thing that won't work if you're on a Buddhist mindfulness retreat. You know, because it only happens if the mind is fresh, is actually showing up, actually interested. Oh, it's like this now. It has to be authentic, the interest, the connection. And see, it doesn't matter how in that moment mixed up or sleepy or fed up the mind might be because it just so happens. I mean, this is the interesting thing about mindfulness. It really doesn't matter what the activity in the mind, the activity in the body, the activity around us is because the mind, the heart or mindfulness has this capacity to show up. Oh, to have an authentic relationship. Oh, it's like this now. This experience of the mind and body, whatever it might be, however faint it might be, however clear it might be, subtle or obvious it might be, painful or delightful it might be, this is how it is. This is what's being known. It's this experience being known. Even, you know, attachment, which we we think superficially we have rights to be controlling about or angry at. But even attachment, obsessiveness can be seen with mindfulness. So yeah, sometimes the mind's really attached. Sometimes the mind is really obsessive and it feels like this, it looks like this. This obsessiveness of mind is being known here and now. It's so, it's a real turning point I think when we have moments of that great doubt, you know, where the thought like, you know, I really shouldn't have come on this retreat or something, it could be about some other aspect of your life, you know, I shouldn't have taken that job, gotten married or whatever. And it just is so vivid and clear. And this is that strange place where we're neither for, we don't have to be for or against it. Once mindfulness arrives on the scene and knows that the mind is caught or obsessed, it's so wonderful that the issue of that particular obsession, papancha is the Pali word for that mental proliferation, conceptual proliferation, It doesn't have to be resolved. We don't actually need to know whether that thought was somehow correct or incorrect, I should have or I shouldn't have. 
all we have to understand, all the mind has to understand is it is like this. This thought is being known or the reverberation of the thought that's here and now is still being felt like this. I really, um, for me, like starting over during a set or when I'm on retreat, and I'm sure you've heard already, even those of you who are here for the first time, it's really not just about, of course, the times you're in the hall in formal city meditation. We're really pointing to a way of being, a practice that, you know, all of our waking hours, even those minutes when you're in bed but haven't fallen asleep or in bed but haven't gotten out of bed in the morning. We're, we want to be interested in the experience of mindfulness, the possibility of this simple, this not easy, but this simple connecting with the moment, the simple acknowledgement or recognition of the present moment. Oh. And of course, we often use words up here, right, to convey this, but that doesn't mean you have to be saying to yourself, oh, it's like this. I mean, you can. It can be useful in moments to use some internal language to just amplify or clarify the, the intention to relate to experience with awareness, with mindful awareness. What's the heart feeling? Oh, this is the feeling. It's just this feeling being known. But I like to sense this as some, as a real sacred space. I mean, for some of that, for some of us, that really speaks to us. But in this practice, you know, it's not somewhere else, the sacred space is really more about a sacred way of relating to the present moment. That's really the thing of beauty here. That's why it doesn't really matter the particular state my heart or mind is in or the particular state my body is in or how much humidity there is or any of those internal or external factors. The only thing that really matters, do we have enough trust, maybe even enough initial information and trust that there's a way to relate to the present moment that's actually beautiful and healing and ultimately liberating? And it's never not available. And it doesn't matter how many moments we've been off. However, you may think you're the specialist in being off, <laughs> you know, whatever that might be. You know, exactly what we wouldn't want to say in public. You know, what our mind does sometimes. So this is the bit of information that can be helpful to let in. Right, so that you can actually remember when your mind seems to be saying that, no, no, not now. I've really blown it. I'm really in a bad place. Then you want the bit of information to come to the forefront and say, 
I think the Buddha is saying that it doesn't really matter that any moment will do, that it's possible now to recognize that it's like this now, to acknowledge, to allow, because it is already this way. So it's, in that sense, it's simple because we're not asking the moment to be different than it is, which would be a hard ask, right? All we're doing is recognizing what's already here in the body and the mind, what's already showing up in the moment. Oh, this is how it is. So this chicken and egg thing in terms of our mindfulness practice, the tricky part is that that information, the teachings are really important, but it's hard to know what the teachings are about until we have experience, right? So we can say, you know, it's just something being known. And we can get that information and then we apply it, but it, it's a little bit, at first it's sort of, we're just doing our best. But it's useful to use the instructions to apply them to the moment, almost like a frame. Because without the frame that we're giving you when we talk about mindfulness, the mind is going to look at the present moment in predictable ways. Sometimes in Buddhist terms we say, we'll look at the present moment in a personal way or, excuse me, from a self view, where the mind uh, has a very particular relationship and attitude about pleasantness and a very particular relationship and attitude about pain. And there's really no space in the mind, no doubt, like I know what pain is, I know that I don't like it, and I know that I'm gonna do whatever I can do to minimize it, and I know what pleasantness is, I know what I like, and I want more of it, right? As long as I'm not embarrassing myself. But with mindfulness, all of that comes into view. We're not trying to eliminate initially that condition, we just want to understand it. We just want to see the activity of the mind and body. And that's a different point of view where we want to see everything, we want everything to, to be in the light of awareness. Oh, this is, this is how the mind sees, this is how the mind reacts, this is how the mind is deceptive to itself even. This is why the, the other pointing out instruction, you know, about mindfulness, not, uh, being about not judging, it's not about judging, or we could even say not about controlling. And so the, the important instruction is that it's about understanding. It's about relaxing so the mind can understand. Because if the mind's in a tight relationship with the present moment, it won't be able to see clearly and understand. So we're not reminding ourselves to relax because it feels good. It does feel good to relax. 
but it really supports clear seeing. And the other bit of information that is really helpful, and again, it's something we, we grow into the understanding over usually many years of practice, which just again, to challenge the habit, the habitual ways of looking at our experience, we say that whatever we're looking at, the breath, sound, thought, we remind the mind that it's a natural process, that the activity of thinking is nature. It's just the movement of nature. The activity of sensations in the body or the sensations of the breath or sounds or sights being known, that that's nature. And you see that even as a bit of information, just an intellectual understanding and just bringing that to mind as we're aware of the breath, aware of the body, aware of thinking, right? It supports that interest and it supports the non-attachment like the just allowing, the non-judgment. Well, maybe if it's really just nature, maybe I can leave it alone. You know, when other aspects of nature, some of you were watching the clouds this evening, you know, it never occurs to us to feel responsible for the clouds or for the mother deer or for a lot of things. And so when we understand that the body is nature and the thinking mind is nature and the feeling heart, the emotional heart is nature, and the movement of all the other retreatants in the retreat space is nature. And the dance that the teachers do at the front of the room is just the activity of nature. You see, it, it's already, even, even on that intellectual level, there's a kind of coolness about that point of view. And hopefully it, it, it brings up an interest because the idea is it brings us into a newer territory, which will then, like seeing the deer in the woods, interest is just there. It's not like I have to try to be interested in the present moment. The only thing that keeps the mind from being interested in the present moment is the arrogance of delusion, thinking that we know. I find that to be one of the best definitions of this basic problem from the Buddhist teachings point of view, which is ignorance or delusion. I find the best definition is thinking that we know because there's no humility, there's no interest. If I think I already know what I'm experiencing, I'm not going to make the effort to go beyond the habits of the mind to be superficial. I'm not gonna make the effort to open or to connect or to listen or to feel what's here to feel. I'll just go on to the next thing because, okay, I know what this is. And we live in that conceptual bubble most of the time. And this is really the biggest challenge for us. We need to have a lot of respect for that, the momentum of that habit to trust our sort of perceptual conclusions 
where we don't actually have to be in moments of seeing, in moments of hearing, with moments of touching, moments of seeing the thoughts or knowing the thoughts come and go. Because there's that narration that is basically saying, oh, I got this, I know this. So this bit of information that we get, the teachings around, sometimes right view we call it, but this direction of opening and understanding the present moment with fresh eyes, unbiased eyes, which means we see a lot of the conditioning of the mind, a lot of the biases to see things certain ways. Here's an interesting passage from Thich Nhat Hanh, this Vietnamese monk, one of the real elders. In his school of Buddhism is actually, I think people sometimes call him a Zen master, but in Vietnam it was really he refers to himself as sort of a four-school Buddhist with the Mahayana and the Theravada and the Pure Land. And I think Zen is the fourth. But I like this because it really is a, creates an image of the continuity and the power that comes from the continuity of mindful awareness. This is from his book, Art of Power. One of the core practices of mindfulness is to take care of our painful emotions. We can use the energy of mindfulness to recognize the pain inside and hold it tenderly, like a mother holding her baby. The energy of mindfulness does the work of recognizing, embracing, and bringing relief. You may not know what is causing your pain, your despair, your fear, But if you know how to hold that pain with the energy of mindfulness, you immediately get relief. Because the energy of mindfulness begins to penetrate the energy of pain, of sorrow. And then he has this beautiful image. He says, he writes, imagine a flower in the morning. The flower is not yet open. The sunshine embraces the flower and the energy of the sunlight begins to penetrate the flower. The sun doesn't just go around the flower. The light naturally penetrates the flower. And an hour later, the flower has to open itself to the sun. The sun is our mindfulness, embracing the flower of our feelings. And it's interesting, and I think it's useful to interpret a teaching like that both in terms of mindfulness being receptive, somewhat passive, patient, but also mindfulness as a kind of the more assertive quality of mindfulness, wanting to connect, wanting to see the truth of things, wanting to understand the underlying nature, not content with the surface. 
like maybe you notice when you're aware of the body or aware of the breath, there's a habit, there can be a habit of the mind wanting to insert the thought. It's like, there's gotta be something more. This isn't it. And there's something about the training really to not believe that thought, to notice that's just a thought. A lot of the times our thoughts aren't backed up with understanding or wisdom. They're just the thought coming out of, you know, the habits. And, you you know, it doesn't, we all know how much in our culture we're being reinforced to flit about, to be superficial. It's really hard to apply ourselves to anything for any length of time these days. And so our practice, that kind of patience with experience, to really have that willingness to be patient and to be interested, we need these, uh, the wisdom pointing out instructions, like the, to be curious that this may not be what it appears to be. It's like the idea of the breath coming in or the idea of the breath going out, that's a pretty boring idea. But the experience of the breath coming in or out, or the experience of the body sitting, or the body walking, or the experience of hearing the wind through the leaves, or seeing the sky, or observing a bird, seeing the bird fly by, There's something inherent in experience because it isn't so much about the experience, but going back to what I was saying earlier, it's more about the possibility of how the mind relates to the experience. So this can be a mistaken idea of mindfulness that we're here and we'll develop this sort of laser attention. And with that, powerful attention, oatmeal will taste so much better. And the green of the leaves will be so much more green. And uh, because there is a certain heightened quality as the mind becomes more stable. But it's more about the discovery, the insight is more about how the mind can relate, how the mind can be with experience. It's the radical change in how the mind relates to the activity of the body and mind. It's not so much about the body, the activity of the body and mind themselves, but this transformation in how the mind relates. And, you know, in simple terms, a lot of you know this, with clinging or without clinging, with attachment or without attachment, with craving or without craving. As the, you know, we hear that, that teaching that this experience of the body, this experience of the mind, this experience of the present moment is a natural process. 
And then as that frame allows us to look with new eyes at the present moment, activity of the body or mind, and we sense now directly or intuit, this is a natural process, changing process. It's not personal. This, these thoughts coming and going, these emotions coming and going, these sounds, these sensations coming and going. Then letting go becomes the natural way of being. It's not something, gosh, I gotta let go. We catch ourselves with attachments. I mean, we already have tried this, you know, where we catch ourselves really tight about something and we know we shouldn't be tight. We know it's not helping, but that doesn't mean we can let go. I mean, some of you are in long-term relationships or dear, have dear friends. And then when there's conflict and you want to go beyond the conflict and you know what you're holding to, but it doesn't really help to say to yourself, let go. What helps is to understand, like to have new eyes where you see what you're feeling, feel what you're feeling, see the activity, how you interact with that person as a natural process. Because the more you see how conflict arises as natural proce- as a natural process, and every other little and big disturbance that will come during this retreat, all of that and all of the beauty will be just the movement of a natural process. So that way we don't have to personalize the difficult moments on the retreat and we don't have to personalize even the most beautiful or sublime moments on the retreat. It's just a natural process. So the, the non-attachment, the letting go, really arises out of this stance of having this information, right? This is a conditional, lawful thing going on here, cause and effect, complex, but basically some lawful, conditional movement of what we sometimes call causes and conditions. It's a natural process. So we get that information, and if it's delivered appropriately, then there's some interest. And because we're interested, we very quickly learn that getting tight doesn't serve the interest. We need to relax. Being involved having an agenda, wanting to get enlightened, it doesn't help, right? Because it skews, it like it's opposite of the interest. And this is that chicken and egg, right? Where we need the wisdom instructions and we need the interest and we need to be relaxed And for any one of those things to really be strong, you need the other two. So how does this whole thing get set in motion then, this thing we call our practice, right? If it's a combination of some wisdom, whether it's just initial pointing out instructions and some degree of trust and relaxation and willingness to allow things to be the way they are, right? That's really what the relaxation is about, and some alert 
interest. And that's why we sometimes will use simple environments like being here together at IMS and even more specifically having an anchor like walking back and forth in a quiet place at a relaxed pace or sitting relatively still in the hall with a posture that supports wakefulness, you know, in a space that's relatively quiet. Because, and even more specifically, coming using an anchor, like Annie talked about this morning, like the breath or the whole body or hearing. So we, have, we can create a more specific training ground or working ground to ignite these three things, the relaxation and trust, the interest, and the wise view that this is nature, not self. This is a changing, lawful, natural process. Whatever it is that the mind is knowing, it's a changing, lawful, natural process. And then that supports the interest. Interest, we see how we're tight in ways that don't help, right? They get in the way of seeing clearly. We learn to let go, relax more. Relaxing strengthens the wisdom and the interest. Everyone strengthens the other too. And when you're you know, in your training ground, doing your walking practice, sitting still in the hall, sitting on a bench, whatever it might be, lying in your bed before you fall asleep at night, you can remember these three pieces so that independent, you know, of outside instruction, you learn how to authentically access interest, how to authentically access relaxation and trust, how to authentically bring up the teachings that sort of are a necessary ingredient. Because we could be very alert, interested, and relaxed, but simply perpetuate, reconfirm our already established views. So this is the thing that we can be really grateful for. These teachings, although they may seem at times simple, when we really consider them in terms of our own direct experiencing right here in the present moment, we see how counter they are to the habits of the mind. They make so much sense, you know, just on a, as a philosophical system that everything's nature, a natural process, makes a lot of sense. But that's not our conditioning, the conditioning of the thinking mind. So to bring that into the mix with the alert interest and the ease, relaxation, sets up this powerful dynamo, right? Which we call the path of awakening. And then we lose it. And then we find the thread again. And over time we learn how to feed the thread, like which of those three need to be amped up. Okay, really emphasizing the relaxing, 
really emphasizing the interest, really emphasizing the bringing in the wise view. So maybe regurgitating some of the information, a phrase you heard in a talk, and then letting it have its effect on the mind right there in the present moment. So that in this way we become more and more independent. How to keep this wise, mindful awareness happening. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, one of the most important things is never to believe the thought that I can't do it in this moment. I'm hurting too much, I'm too tired. Because even if you decide, oh, I'm just gonna go to bed, right? What's to stop those, why can't the mind in a relaxed and alert way with that wisdom see that decision, I'm, I've had it, I'm just gonna go to bed as a natural process and not judge it and just allow it and have a really beautiful relationship. So if you are gonna give up <laughs> and go to sleep, which, you know, we all need sleep, right? Why not have a beautiful relationship with the activity of the body and the mind? a wise relationship. So there's nothing you can do on this retreat that can't be the ground for another moment of these three things. The heart, mind, body being relaxed, at ease. The mind, heart being alert, interested, wanting to understand, wanting to see clearly and checking out these wisdom teachings. Is this a natural process? Are things coming and going? Is it lawful? Does clinging help? Is there any function, any positive function to attachment, to clinging, any value whatsoever? Right? And just use every moment. And don't worry in those moments where you're trying to remember how to practice. Just do your best. Like, remember what you remember and start there. Okay, I remember I'm supposed to relax. So then you just start there with the, okay, relax. Because you'll see that there will be a little bit of interest, like even the remembering to relax, you'll see you're interested. Like you have to be interested to know how you're holding. And then as you relax, as some interest comes in, you'll be more likely to remember to not personalize. Oh, this is just what the mind does. This is just what the body does. Sometimes it's like this, right? So just that sense of having more space in the mind. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's that, that's what that teacher was talking about. You know, that it's just stuff happening. It's not so personal. And it's really, remember, the Buddha's not trying to make some philosophical claim that everything's impersonal. 
it's much more pragmatic than that. It's like that that wise view is practically wise. It's a useful view to see the activity of the mind and body, the activity of the present moment as a natural process. This is for us to check out. That's That wisdom piece is something to check out. It's not something to believe in. It's something, it's a view to try out. Does it, when I use that view, that way of relating to the present moment, the experience of the present moment, is there more freedom, more ease, more skill, the response, the way of responding, is it more skillful, more useful? So it's really a pragmatic thing, which means that we can actually check it out. Is it helping? It's really that simple. This is from a couple more quotes from Sadhu Tejaniya. If you do not watch the mind, defilements will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you. That's the wisdom teaching. It's a natural process. But he goes on, but you are responsible for it. And another quote, it does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It's more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful unskillful, appropriate, inappropriate, necessary, or unnecessary. And that's a, that will really test us, because as we do have more relaxation and interest and we see more, that wise view that what's being known is just a natural process will be challenged. Oh no, this is not okay. This is personal or this I need to do something about. And we'll miss seeing that that reaction is just itself a natural process and will be that doer doing, you know, that controller controlling that person running away or hiding from something, not wanting to see. And eventually the tension in the mind and body will wake us up. What's going on? And it's interesting how clarifying being tight, being, you know, hurting, how clarifying that can be. We're willing to go, okay, what do I remember works? You know, we'll remember, okay, I can relax, I can be interested, and I can bring in these teachings to try out this way of relating with my interest and my relaxation, try out this way of relating, which is to see the activity of the mind or whatever's predominant in the moment or your anchor, to see it as a changing natural process, to let nature be nature. I'll end with this uh, quote from Ajahn Sumedho. It's a little humor. And uh, he uses the phrase letting go. You might substitute, sometimes letting go, that phrase can 
you know, depending on your personality, sound a little bit like a command, like a lot of doing. So you might want a different phrase like allowing or letting be or just this being known. But anyway, here's this passage. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, and then he goes on and on talking about all the different Buddhist traditions that you'd master and writes, write books, become a world-renowned authority in Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. Or allow, allow, allow. This is being known, this is being known, this is being known. In the second paragraph, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world, just be an earthworm who knows only two words, letting go, letting go, letting go. And I think what I take away from that is this sense of um, what I mentioned earlier in the talk about the sacred space of the present moment. That's the earthworm thing he's talking about because the present moment almost never, I mean, sometimes, but often, most often doesn't feel special. You know, it's just what it is. But remember, it's not about the pain in the knee that's special or the obsessive thinking or the dullness or whatever difficult experience that shows up from time to time. It's about this potential of relating to the present moment in a wise way, in a free way, in an easeful way. So it's really about, that's why the present moment conditions can't really um, take away this possibility of relating with freedom. There's something about mindfulness, how it isn't stained by what's being known, what's being allowed, what's being recognized. When, you, when you're in that place of some balance, some alertness, some relaxation, some wisdom, and you see the anger in the mind or you see the joy in the mind, the awareness isn't affected, isn't pushed around by the anger or the joy or whatever it is that's being known. There's something in a Buddhist sense, empty. So we learn something in these ordinary moments of mindfulness. We start to intuit a sense of 
this possibility of freedom. Just in simple moments of being with body pain, being with boredom, being with joy, being with gratitude. So both the pleasant and wholesome and the unpleasant and unwholesome states, body and mind states, that we can be free with it all. We can be at ease. We can let everything be a natural process. And the really beautiful, sort of like beauty on top of beauty is, we turn out to be a much more skillful human being, a better partner, a better friend, a better citizen, a better human being. So let's just take a few moments and let go of the words. We have a walking practice now. So tonight, just if you didn't uh, remember from the schedule, we'll have uh, chanting at nine o'clock, and then a set for. Very short. (laughs) Annie says very short, (laughs) so under two hours. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.